Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Loners, I've found, are good company. Once in a while, of course. I think we recognize something about one another, us loners. We sense each other's discomfort. A loner is born out of their own unrelatable past, so although we can't even relate to each other, we can relate to being unrelatable. I showed up at my brother's apartment one day around the age of 22 with a couple of garbage bags full of clothes. Leroy had a crash pad full of squatters, so I just hopped on the pile eventually ending up on a pull-out couch salvaged from the street that we affectionately named Old Rickety. The apartment was right downtown and in a decrepit brick building that shadowed an alley and the back lot of a strip club. In the apartment below lived a tiny old bachelor, known maybe not so affectionately about town as the Elephant Man. He was covered in large goiters, pussy bumps that disfigured him. Some had been removed through surgery, leaving deep divots, he made a meager living off a of disability and washing the windows of the downtown storefronts. His name was Frank, and we often chain-smoked and drank with the man on a shared patio during the summer months. He was the perfect neighbor for us. We were way too loud most of the time, and Frank never complained. A roommate soon appeared at Frank's, a tall, odd-looking Irishman in his mid-twenties. I coincidentally met him at a train station previous to him becoming a regular on the patio. His name was Johnny, and we'd struck up a fast friendship beneath some weed smoke on a bench at the far end of the waiting platform. He'd been on his way to a rave and was wearing a full-out Winnie the Pooh costume that had a ripped-out mouth for drinking and smoking purposes. 
The head came detached, and when I approached him on our first meeting, he had it beside him like a football helmet. I casually asked him what was up. He said, quote, anything. I passed him the joint, and we laughed our asses off, corny as it sounds. Johnny and I always laughed our asses off. He was the definition of a character. We never spoke too deeply about our individual past, but with him, you could tell it wasn't good. It was clear that he was using the elephant man for a free bet. He even admitted as much to me. Frank considered Johnny to be like a son to him. Johnny considered Frank to be a lovable misfit he could trade companionship for board to. It was a sad situation. Frank was lonely and Johnny was destitute, an odd couple existing on the fringe of society. It was obvious to me that Johnny was running from something. The presence of police made him shut down. We got hammered in a pub one night and he admitted that he was in Canada illegally and was running from trouble back home. What kind of trouble he wouldn't say. He'd come to Canada to see about a girl, but it hadn't worked out. She'd become pregnant by him on a school visit to Ireland, and later aborted their child without his knowledge. He spit when he spoke of this, clearly highly upset by the whole thing. I listened, which was all he needed. None of it made any difference to me. The guy was charming as hell. If a door wouldn't open for him, the window soon did. He'd fight at the drop of a hat, which was important to me then. When I told him I was owed money by a local scumbag, he found out who it was, and basically kidnapped the guy, tied him to a chair in Frank's kitchen, and brought me down and presented it like a cat would present you a dead bird on your pillow. Johnny began heating up a spoon on the stovetop to burn the guy with. The young thug was spared by my pleas for Johnny to stop after he promised to pay up. We became extremely tight over this incident, which spelled the beginning of the end for our friendship. Johnny moved in with us, vowing to pay his share but it soon became clear that he had no intention of contributing. He made frequent calls back to his dad in Ireland. I'd overhear these conversations that were full of heartbreaking apologies and promises. The charges that showed up on the phone bill came out of my meager paycheck, but of this I never complained. There was something wrong with Johnny, I'd realized. He spoke to himself sometimes, and he was always on edge. He had crude tattoos. One was a dead tree that had the name, quote, Johnny Appleseed surrounding it. He slept with a big Rambo knife under his pillow and was obsessed with cocaine. A night with Johnny was great. A month? Borderline terrifying. He never stopped. The party went forever. I'd wake up to the sound of him snorting something off of our beer can laid in coffee table. I say something not to be cute. This guy snorted caffeine pills when coke was scarce. I'd get up for work and he'd just stare at me like he didn't know who I was. I'd ask him how he could afford drugs and not his share of the rent. Call him Johnny No Cash, to which he'd laugh and tell me to relax and attempt to share the plate of whatever he was fucking around with. He was always telling me to relax, like I was the one who was out of line. Our friendship soon fell apart because of this. We locked him out one night, and after banging for some time, he attempted to use the window, but a group of us confronted him. Yes, he scared groups of people. He finally got the hint and shook his head disappointedly at us before heading back down to the elephant man's lair. We were relieved. A few months later... We were shocked. The official story goes that one morning at around 4 a.m., Johnny heard a knock on Frank's door. He'd been drinking and snorting coke as per usual, so was wide awake. When he opened the door, a woman in her late 40s was standing there. She was looking for a friend from the bar. Random people from the street stumbling through this apartment building was commonplace, but what happened next was insanity. Johnny apparently grabbed the woman and yanked her into the apartment. He shoved her into the bathroom and attempted to sexually assault her. She fought. Johnny beat on her, then grabbed his knife and cut her throat. The wound later required 40 stitches. 
He must have panicked at this point as she was able to escape the apartment. He stabbed her with a conviction twice more in the back on the way out to the deserted, recently police-sweep street following the chaos of closing time. But rather than continue his attack, Johnny relented and tried to console her. He helped her to a nearby taxi stand where they called for assistance. Johnny waited for the help to arrive, allegedly holding a shirt to her neck wound. He was soon arrested without further incident. The woman survived the attack. The whole thing was terrible, but a perfect relation of Johnny's personality. A good guy in first appearance with madness below the surface, followed by more good guy deep down. Well, maybe good guy is pushing it. How about sane guy who's able to self-preserve when the madness kicks in? Johnny was sentenced to nine years in prison, then deported. I'm sure he served less. This sentence, when announced, caused the victim's family to gasp. Johnny didn't flinch, although I'm certain the toes of his feet lifted, as was his expression of hidden joy. The charge of attempted murder was rescinded after the judge accepted Johnny's story that he had envisioned the woman to be his ex-girlfriend, the one who had aborted his child, and he had experienced a psychotic episode as a result of drinking and snorting too much coke. I can guarantee you that if Johnny and I were to mend our friendship and chat over at Jameson about what really went on that night, he'd laugh through the tale, then show true remorse if I didn't reciprocate. The woman he attacked wasn't selling girl guy cookies, knocking on random doors at four in the morning. Word from those who spoke to Johnny about this crime is that he was the one she was looking for. There weren't many apartments in that building. And when she didn't yield to his sexual advances, advances I witnessed him sloppily attempt on any female he crossed, including my own girlfriend at the time, which led to more than one intense conversation, Johnny snapped. He'd shared his drugs with her, after all. I'll elaborate here and confirm that I'm being sarcastic. Some listeners or more likely former listeners have accused me of being sexist or insensitive to female victims in these cases. I'm dedicated, as I've said, to creating an honest podcast and sharing an honest interpretation. I'm not a humanitarian, never claimed to be. I didn't grow up in a culture that reads into things much or with people who felt the need to qualify everything they said or did. Low-down, dirty things happen in low-down, dirty places. This podcast is an extension of my mind, and my mind's messy. I try to clean it up before inviting you in, but at times I leave a bag on the table or a bottle in the bathtub. So if you want your true crime sugar-coated, watch the news. I will say that sharing alcohol and drugs with a female is by no means a green light to rape, and that fighting off said rape doesn't justify a knife being pulled on you and your murder being attempted. Fucking obviously. What I mean by sharing my opinion that this woman willingly walked into Johnny's lair is that he knew exactly who she was when he snapped. It wasn't some phantom apparition of his ex-girlfriend superimposed on a stranger at the door. You see, I'm actually on the victim's side if you, if you hear me out. <laughs> I try to speak to you like I speak to my friends, and that's with the knowledge that they know I'm well-rounded despite some of my experiences. I hope by this point I conveyed that sufficiently to you as well. Johnny was violent. Johnny wasn't stable. And by the sounds of things, I'm lucky I never pushed whatever button got compressed in Johnny's mind that night. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is an episode about a horrible killer who was cut from a larger yet identical piece of cloth as my old friend. A drifter with a head full of confused pain and violence that spilled out from time to time. That breached the barriers one awful night. Richard Speck. Richard Benjamin Speck was born on December 6, 1941, in the village of Kirkwood, Illinois. His father, Benjamin Franklin Speck, LOL, and mother, Mary Margaret, were already six kids deep 
and considering Richard was born quite a while after the sixth, it's assumed that he and his sister, who arrived soon after, were maybe the result of the baby boom. Everyone was doing it, it seems. At this time, even couples headed into their fifties and hardly able to make ends meet. Richard's mother was a strict, God-fearing woman. She once tore into her husband for enjoying a beer at a get-together. Richard's father was a sober, likely not by choice, hard-working man who kept his head low around his wife, a recurring theme in recent episodes, and Richard loved him fiercely. The two enjoyed quiet fishing excursions together, away from the suffocating dominion of mother at home. Unfortunately, when Richard was only six years old, his father suddenly died of a heart attack at the age of 53, and an already hard life became much more difficult for the Speck family. Not long after this tragedy, while on a train trip to Chicago, Mary Margaret meets a traveling insurance salesman. He's the opposite of her deceased husband in that he drinks heavily and prefers to scam his way through life rather than work hard at it. He's older, in his 60s. His voice cracks a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. And apparently up to the task of adopting a family of nine. One of his many mugshots shows a gruff-looking old man with suitcases under his eyes, clad in a worn suit adorned with a pocket watch and chain. His rap sheet is long and littered with failed scams, forgeries, frauds, and, of course, an impressive list of drunk driving offenses. It wasn't as easy to pick up this charge back then. You had to be playing bumper cars to provoke it. Young Richard hates his new stepfather, who has taken to verbally and physically abusing everyone in short order. Another devastating incident soon marks Richard's development when his oldest brother dies in a car accident. It never really gets easy for Richard Speck. He is forced to leave Illinois for Texas, where the family moves from poor neighborhood to poorer neighborhood, at least ten moves by the time he's old enough to begin a nomadic life all of his own. Acne plagues the boy's face through late elementary and junior high school. The scars from this are evident later. One of the main descriptions that will always follow him is pockmarked. He required glasses, but refused to wear them. He had enough going against him when it came to his face. I'm surprised it isn't a bestseller at Halloween Depot stores every October. <laughs> Speck's grades are never anything special. Teachers, likely feeling sorry for him, push him on through the system until he's eventually held back, following a particularly poor showing in grade 8. He manages to pass the following year, but Speck's high school career is short-lived. After failing every subject in his first semester of grade 9, he drops out. Speck soon takes up a drinking habit he began forming at age 12, full-time. Speck is a loner, and although he always carries an air of sly self-assurance, he's basically a scared kid inside, desperate for acceptance. He lies constantly, usually in an attempt to make himself appear tougher and more dangerous than he actually was early on. Eventually, he begins to believe his own hype and starts carrying a switchblade and collecting shitty tattoos, one of which read, quote, Born to raise hell. This crudely inked proclamation was inspired by Speck's belief that he literally brought hell into the world at birth, as the Pearl Harbor attacks occurred the next day. People are in fact intimidated by Speck. He's mean-looking, stands at 6'1", and is the wiry, deceptively strong type. His washed-out blue eyes are calculating, and he develops a drawl in his speech that's charming and disarming at once. Speck is in his early 20s when he manages to get work at a 7-Up factory, and although he begins getting into some trouble with the law through fighting and public disturbance while drinking mostly, he manages to keep the job, and soon meets a pretty young girl at the Texas State Fair, 15-year-old Shirley Malone, who he knocks up three weeks into courtship and marries less than four months later. The right thing to do. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here, and I have an interest in how we're going to be 
treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlands Food. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippics are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. It's pretty clear at this point that Speck isn't going to follow in his father's footsteps and buckle down to raise a family. He begins behaving more like his stepfather, abusing his young wife and accusing her of the infidelities only he is guilty of. When his daughter is born, Speck is not present. He's locked up for his part in a drunken bar fight. In the summer of 1963, Speck begins to really blow his chances at flying straight. He forges a fellow employee's $44 check, then robs a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and three bucks from the till. He's soon arrested and eventually sentenced to three years in prison over this drunken crime spree. It should go without saying that he lost his job as a result, and his new wife is left alone with a baby to care for. He's paroled from Texas State Penn on January 2, 1965, after having served just under a year and a half. The good behavior he summons to earn this reprieve fails to hold under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Shortly after he's paroled, Speck takes a large carving knife and attempts to grab a woman who's headed to her apartment building from her vehicle. 
The woman screams loud enough to spook her attacker, and neighbors take notice. The police are called immediately, and they catch up to the highly recognizable Richard Speck, who is still lurking in the area for some reason. The tall, pale, pockmarked mouth breather is returned to prison and given a year and a third for the incident. Six months of his sentence includes a parole violation that is tied in concurrently with the attempted assault. When his time for the parole charge is completed, a mistake is made, and Speck is released. Eight months early. Somehow, I've made my way back to pointing out mistakes by the Texas justice system. This is a Chicago-based crime story that takes a stroll through Dallas, I found out, too late. I might have to look outside of North America to avoid the jangle of spurs in future episodes. After his release, Speck picked up work doing deliveries for a meat company. Soon enough, he's fired for choosing an early morning beer over a shower, not to mention the half-dozen accidents he's been in over three months with the truck they assigned him. The relationship with his wife is all but over. Speck is still in his early 20s, yet he feels like life has passed him by. He moves in with a recently divorced 29-year-old woman who tends bar at one of his favorite watering holes. She's a former pro wrestler and takes a liking to Speck, who soon accepts the role as a temporary father figure to her three children in exchange for free board and an open tap. This cozy little situation evaporates when Speck gets into a knife fight at the bar after learning that his wife has filed for divorce. He's charged with aggravated assault. One of his over 40 charges accrued while residing in the Dallas area. His mother hires a lawyer who manages to get Speck off with a disturbing the peace charge. The fine for this is 10 bucks. He gathers the funds without much work, likely no work at all. Finally, Speck's tenure in Texas comes to an end when two months later he commits one of the dumbest crimes I've ever studied. He breaks into another grocery store and steals 70 cartons of smokes and takes them out to an old car he's recently bought with the help of those who want him to hop back on the rails. Rather than fleeing the scene, he begins trying to sell the hot cigarettes to passers-by like a 1920s paperboy. A squad car soon pulls up and Speck flees the scene, leaving the car that's registered in his name sitting like a fat fingerprint in the parking lot. The party is mercifully over in Texas. Speck hops on a bus destined for Chicago and is soon staying with friends and family, who he convinces with short expiring charm that all he requires is a place to nap while he works to get on his feet. He gains employment with the help from family as a carpenter's apprentice and manages to behave himself until he gets word that his now ex-wife is remarried just two days after the divorce is finalized. This news causes Speck to excuse himself from the dry environments he's being accepted into, and with the funds from the new job, he checks into a seedy rooming house downtown that lacks any rule other than paying up once a week. He soon spends a night in jail after threatening a man with his ever-ready switchblade in a tavern washroom. Soon after this, Speck commits his first heinous crime on April 3rd of 1966, less than a month into acclimating to his true environment. Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old resident of small-town Monmouth, Illinois, returns home around 1 a.m. after an evening of babysitting. She closes the door behind her, then moves forward into what she expects to be a blessedly quiet sanctuary. Speck, who has been ransacking the home, hears Miss Harris enter and creeps up with his ever-present switch and grabs her. He immediately begins calming the woman with his disarming Texas drawl and guides her to her room where he blindfolds, then ties her up before committing rape. He then takes the $2.50 she'd earned earlier that evening and exits after stealing a few items. It's a build-up crime, and she is left without being further harmed, although there is certainly harm in deserting a 65-year-old woman you've just raped and left tied up and blind to figure out how to seek help in the middle of the night. Days later, a 32-year-old, quote, barmaid, um, vanishes after exiting a tavern named Frank's Place at around 1 a.m. I do have her name, but all of a sudden it strikes me as wrong to share some of these 
people's names without having a proper backstory on them. So I'll use my questionable discretion as we go here. Mid-game adjustment. Audible. It's uh, audible. It's football season, right? Uh, the police begin searching for this woman after she's reported missing five days later after leaving the bar and soon discover that she's been beaten, raped, and left for dead in a recently built hog house behind Frank's place. The cause of death is a ruptured liver. Speck, as I've already said, was a deceptively strong man. His arms have been described as being, at this time, like, quote, baseball bats, and his hands like the head of sledgehammers. I always check to see if one of my prospective episodes has been covered recently by another podcast. Speck's infamous story hasn't been presented much that I know of, but it has been briefly covered by the, in my opinion, usually hilarious last podcast on the left. I'm not one to be offended by anything other than stupidity, but... Their offering left me a little frustrated after digging into this case. It was a spree killer episode they did, so they were glazing over it, I guess. But all I took from their coverage was that Speck apparently had a super punch that could kill on impact. I think they were talking about this victim's liver rupture, of which I found no proof that she had been ultimately murdered by a death punch. It's more likely he kicked her to death as he used this technique later. Anyways, if you hate the way I tell a story, head over to that podcast event. There... <laughs> Their immaculate rating won't be affected by your sensibilities like mine currently is. Great podcast, though. I'm jealous. I wish I could uh, freestyle over the Wikipedia page for a living like they do. <laughs> Just joking. They're, they're super talented and funny. Check it out if you don't. If you haven't. Last podcast on the left. The discovery of this woman's body behind the bar she worked at causes investigators to focus on those who frequent Frank's place. Speck, who is a recent regular, doubly draws interest when it's discovered that he help build the hog barn in which the body is discovered. He's interviewed by investigators who catch up to him at his workplace on payday. Speck is amicable with the officers and promises to stay in town until they complete their investigation. They return soon after this meeting to further question Speck, but he's gone. Incredibly, either out of haste or stupidity, Speck leaves his room without clearing items that connect him to more than a couple of recent break-ins, one of which included the unconscionable rape of a 65-year-old woman. A warrant is put out for his arrest. Speck flees to his older sister's apartment that she shares with her husband and two teenage daughters. He spins the tale of having been approached by an organized crime family to sell drugs and that he now was on the run from them after refusing to do as they requested. His brother-in-law, likely desperate to be rid of this strange new house guest who has begun occupying the couch and reading comic books by day and telling outlandish tough guy stories to his daughters, Speck's closely aged nieces, by night, uses his clout as a former Navy man to get Speck employment on his ship, and soon enough, Speck is having his photo taken for his merchant seaman cart. He soon ships out as a deckhand, but before his brother-in-law can finish wiping his palms clean, he receives word that Speck has been emergency airlifted off the ship after suffering from appendicitis. Speck gets emergency surgery and soon returns to the couch with his comic books. As soon as Speck is able to walk, he's sped back to the hiring office, which sits in close proximity to a row of townhouses being used by the local hospital as a dorm for nurses in training. While Speck's brother-in-law pulls strings, Speck likely pulls on a cigarette as he appraises the coming and goings of the woman known to Speck's now fellow merchant seaman as the Ladies in White. A ship conveniently accepts Speck on, and he finally gains some traction earning his own way again, flexing his skill set as a mop jockey and lavatory garbage bag refresher. But less than a month into his assignment, he's kicked off the ship and dropped off at shore after getting drunk and picking a fight with an officer, the ship's first mate. Speck is likely happy to be back on land. He has a paycheck, so rather than heading back to the hiring office, he boozes in the seedy South Chicago bar scene. 
popping the pills he's so fond of, called Redbirds, and hiring hookers to join him in his 90 cent a night rooming houses. He boasts over pool tables of how he stabbed the first mate of his ship on their way to Vietnam. It's likely as clear to you as it is to me that we have a real piece of shit on our hands here. It's been my experience that the tougher someone is, the quieter they are about it. Guys like Speck need to constantly let you know how tough they believe they are because deep down they're pussies. That doesn't make it safe to confront this type of character, however. The courts are full of weepy, wannabe thugs who pulled a trigger or a knife one night to defend their fabricated honor. When he finally blows his funds, Speck returns to his sister's apartment for the third time in as many months. It's the summer of 1966, and Speck is about as low as a 70-year-old hobo, although he's still not yet 25. Speck is finally worn out his welcome and is given 25 bucks by his sister to basically leave them alone. He snags a room at the shipyard inn, which sits slumped about a half hour from the hiring hall, and promises to no longer be a burden. The day is young, but Speck has no interest in pushing for employment, seeing as how he has cash on hand. He pays off a week at the shipyard inn and heads down to the lounge area that conveniently lays beneath it. Speck has 15 bucks to burn. He begins drinking and at some point notices a female barfly, who he begins following around. By evening, Speck is thoroughly sauced, and when this woman, known as LMA, leaves the bar, he follows closely, pulling his switchblade and sticking it to her back. He repeats over and over in his patented soft drawl that she won't be harmed if she follows instructions. Speck pushes LMA through a side door of the shipyard inn and escorts her up to his room on the seventh floor. LMA is armed. She carries a twenty-two in her purse, but Speck has overwhelmed her, and before she can think to reach for it, Speck has it in his possession, his first order of business having been to see how much money his hostage held. Speck sits Ella on his bed and cracks open a couple of beers, handing her one. He behaves as though LMA is his date, sharing cigarettes and regaling her with tales of his exploits at sea. Ella offers money to be let go, but Speck scoffs at this. He has a $1,300 paycheck in his pocket. Of course, in reality, he has nothing other than the 12 bucks he's already lifted from her wallet. Speck asks the frightened woman about her children and family. Once he's convinced himself that he's done enough to justify making a move without it later being challenged as a crime to have done so, he forces her to take off her clothes and rapes her. When it's over, Speck hands Elamea a bag and guides her back to the street. He informs her that if she speaks of the incident to anyone, he'll harm her children. In shock, Ella stiffly walks away, the care package swinging from her clutched hand. Speck calmly moves in the opposite direction and soon steps into a restaurant named Kay's Pilot House to treat himself to a beer and a burger for a job well done. When Ella May finally arrives at her daughter's house, she peeks into the bag. Speck has sent her off with three beers for her trouble. She quietly sits down at her daughter's table to crack one. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Comfortable. 